the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hey, thanks for listening to the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt. Our podcast is sponsored by Alliance Defending Freedom. ADF provides help at no cost to those whose liberty is being violated, but they can't do it without your help. Call 800-691-8969. That's 800-691-8969. Or visit townhallreview.com. Professor Victor Davis Hansen. He is the Senior Fellow for Classics and Military uh, history at the Hoover Institution. Professor, welcome to America First. Thanks for having me. Uh, and I must add, of course, we've discussed it on the show already, the author of The Case for Trump. We will discuss your findings in your latest book uh, momentarily. But given uh, the day that we are celebrating, uh, in, in, in the desire to place everything in a broader context, I, I have to start with, with a bit of a personal question, Professor. I'm an immigrant, a legal immigrant to the United States. Uh, I chose this country. I believe it to be the greatest experiment in liberty that the world has ever seen. Did you, as an American born in America, ever expect that we would have to have one day a president address Congress and in his State of the Union talk about America never becoming a socialist state as there are members of Congress who are calling for exactly that to happen? Well, you know, I heard things when I was younger in my early teens in the 60s. That was a pretty turbulent time in American history. So they, there was the SDS and yes. the, the uh, weathermen and et cetera. And you would hear things like that, but it was always confined to a fringe. And then growing up on this farm where I'm speaking, I'd hear my grandfather talk about, well, there were socialists during the Depression, Eugene Debs and et cetera. But all of these were fringe uh, groups. They were either third-party candidates or they were agitators. We, I, I never saw a phenomenon as we did in 2016 where Bernie Sanders came within a few points of getting the Democratic nomination. So that was new. And then somebody like AOC or Representative Omar, who are openly socialist, that, that that's new. It used to be that Bernie Sanders was considered a crank. He's been in, I think he's been the representative or the senator from Vermont for almost 30 years now, since his mid-40s. And it was always, when you went to Vermont, they'd all say, oh, good old Bernie. <laughs> he was just kind of a nice socialist. But nobody took him seriously. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, in his you know mid-70s, we're supposed to consider him now a sober and judicious person. He never was. So that that's different, and it represents a lot of currents in American history some understandable, you know, we have this young generation that was poorly educated. They owe a trillion and a half dollars in debt. Their demography is very anemic. They're not marrying. They're not buying homes. They're not having children and at an age where most Americans of prior generations did. But um, it's still 
I guess this is a long-winded answer. It's still very disturbing to see socialism and worse mainstreamed like that. Well, let's let's um, focus down on on the body politic. Let let me uh, rephrase that question beyond just the question of an ideology's popularity and an extremist one that has cost the lives of a hundred million people. Um, did you ever think, born and bred in the United States, that we would have the federal intelligence, the federal police, involved in a political spying campaign in 2016, 2017, which probably will, when we find out the full facts, overshadow Watergate by factors, Professor Hansen? No, because it's different than Watergate in the sense that it's not an isolated branch of government or it's not a rogue group or it's not a cover-up. It's a systematic weaponization of the hierarchy in the Obama administration of the CIA, the FBI, the DOJ, elements of the State Department. And it follows on the heels of the weaponization of the IRS, Lois Lerner going after Tea Parties, and then you know, under Watergate, you had an adversarial press, sort of a self-appointed watchdog. We have a fusion now between the DNC, the progressive movement, and the media. So all of a sudden, the media we used to say that they were the icons of civil liberties protection. Now they are saying you cannot investigate the FBI. We do not want you to endanger the redactions coming out of the CIA. Don't dare suggest that members of the State Department or the DOJ were involved in this. That's new. And that's very scary because freedoms are usually lost when the media joins the government. And whatever you say about Trump, the media is hostile to him. And Trump, on his own, there's nobody in the Trump administration that I know of has said, go after uh, the Soros-funded groups with the IRS audits or deny them non non-profit uh, status the way Lois Lerner did. Or I don't think that Mr. Barr is saying, let's go after these Associated Press reporters and survey them the way that Obama did or James Rosen of Fox. That hasn't happened. Much less is the are the people at the FBI or the CIA saying, you know what, in this upcoming election, we have suspicions that the Democratic candidate might be, you know, influenced by Iran or talking to people in Mexico or some crazy thing, and therefore we're going to surveil them. So whatever happened in 2016, and we still don't know the full extent of it, I don't think there's a parallel, unfortunately, in American history. Talking to experts who've been investigating these issues for two years now, the, the John Solomons, the Sarah Carters of the world, they say that we know between 10 and 30 percent of the scale of the conspiracy of, of the Russiagate, the Spygate conspiracy. Based upon what we know already, Professor Hansen, where would this rank in terms of political conspiracies, con- political scandals in American history? How, how far, how high does it get on, on the list of, of truly insidious plots? Well, I'm afraid it's going to be the highest because we've all, these in the past have been confined to in, one or two individuals as cabinet officers or one or two cabinetcies. But this thing could involve a corruption at the CIA who was using its foreign power uh, prerogatives to go after American citizens. It could be the FBI, who deliberately 
uh, led a campaign of distortion and leaking. I've never heard of the FBI director leaking confidential memos and classified memos to the press for the express purpose of getting a special counsel who was then his close friend. And then when you add in the distortion of the FISA courts, or you look at uh, using a political candidate's funds to hire a foreign national British subject, Christopher Steele, who then in turn enlisted other foreign nationals to subvert a campaign, as they did with Russian sources. And then you package that whole uh, roguery in the context that they are accusing in projection style Trump of doing it. It just never ends. It is hard to credit that this scandal would simply be the result of individual actors who suddenly decided to do nefarious things out of the blue. There has to be a, a broader context. Without going into the realm of conspiracy theory, we have to touch upon whether or not the influences of the Frankfurt School, the Alinsky, uh, Marcuse, uh, influences, the general deconstructionist philosophies of the left, how imperative were those ideologues and ideologies in getting to where we arrived at with this scandal? Well, the, the way I look at it, Sebastian, is in a general way, they enhance this sort of arrogance that these people were progressive social warriors, and they saw a chance for a 16-year regnum of Obama and Hillary that would fundamentally transform the nation, and therefore the details of how that noble crusade were to be effective were not as important as the crusade itself. And that gave these people, like Peter Strzok or James Comey or John Brennan, many of them just bureaucratic careerists, it gave them a, a sense of impunity or exemption from accountability. And then the other thing is more banal, and that is you got to go back to the climate of 2015-16 when everybody was saying that Donald Trump was, A, going to wreck the, the Republican Party. He had no chance. He would not get the nomination. And he would not, if he got it, he would not be elected. If he was elected, he would destroy country. And so there was a sense that, well, as an insurance policy, to quote Andrew McCabe, uh, you could do all these things because Hillary was going to be president. And what would be illegal behavior, given her reputation, would be rewarded as service to a noble cause. So these people were really in a competition to prove to the president-elect Hillary that they had they were responsible for her landslide mandate. And once you start looking, in the, looking at the whole thing in that prism or that matrix, then it makes a lot more sense and explains why these people were so... Not just arrogant, but so careless in the manner in which they they operate. I mean, after all, Bruce Orr, how could a fourth-ranking person in the DOJ think he could get away with having his wife work for Glenn Simpson and then channel that material all unverified and scurrilous into the FBI uh, and then not even report that on a uh, federal form about his wife's employment? It's an arrogance. Same thing with the diluting the FISA course. There was not even an attempt to cover it up because they were they were certain that they were morally right and that Hillary Clinton would appreciate their obedience and reward them accordingly. 
I think this last point is, is, is so interesting because very few people ever mention it. Uh, there is a propensity perhaps on the right to jump to the, the, uh, the deep swamp, uber-sophisticated conspirators uh, theory. But there really is not just a level of arrogance, but also a level of dilettantism with these conspirators. The, the idea that people who are responsible for counterterrorism intelligence at the FBI are having affairs with each other when they are married and then texting inappropriate attacks on the president on their government phones or when you have the president's national security advisor on the day of the inauguration of President Trump send such an explicitly transparent email to everybody about how President Obama wants to make sure that everything was done by the book. This really does undergird the analysis that these people are nefarious, but also incompetent, surely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And after all, why would Andrew McCabe think that after his wife was a recipient of nearly $700,000 in Clinton-related PAC money that he would not, just a few weeks later, not have to recuse himself of investigating her emails? Or why would Hillary Clinton think she could destroy 33 thousand emails on her subpoena and destroy the devices with sledgehammers and think that she would get away with it. There was something about the the milieu or the attitude of the country in 2015 and 16 that we, we really have to remember that Obama had kind of checked out. His poor uh, popularity had gone up the more people didn't see him and they liked the idea of Obama as president rather than the reality of it. And Hillary was supposedly that sober and judicious uh, Democratic stalwart whose time had come. Everybody was jumping on their bandwagon to prove that they were more loyal than the next and they were going to get a better job than the other. And, and, that, and then Trump was just such a, an outsider, an outlier. And that's, that's the climate on which this all took place. And so they weren't careful. They were arrogant. They were sloppy. But they were also nefarious because deep down inside they felt that they had the right to act against the Constitution of the United States. They tried to destroy a campaign. They just tried to destroy a presidential transition. And then they, just, they tried to destroy a presidency. Professor, how much of this was a function of their unalloyed belief that Donald Trump could not be president and that when 63 million Americans chose him, that they chose the wrong candidate, quote-unquote? Well, I think almost all of it was. And remember that almost immediately we had an effort to sue in three states to overturn the voting machine. It said the voting machines were corrupt. And then that didn't work. And then we had on Inauguration Day articles protest, Madonna promising or greening, I should say, of blowing up the White House. Then there were articles of impeachment. Then there was that weird appeal earlier to the elector, electors of the Electoral College not to find follow their mandate, but to be renegade, deny Trump. And then we had the the flirtation with the Logan Act that went after Michael Flynn. Then yes. we had the flirtation with the Emoluments Clause. Then the 25th Amendment, they even got a Yale psychiatrist to testify. And then finally we had the Mueller investigation, and we had the pseudo-coup by Andrew McCabe and Rob Rosenstein. So there were a series of efforts to destroy the Trump administration, and they were all based on the idea that this cannot stand because these are not the right people to be in, the, in positions of power. They're not in the Brookings Institution. They're not in the Council on Foreign <laughs> Relations. They're not from the Economics Department at Harvard. 
these are just crazy people, and we don't want them around. And this was not just left-wing, Sebastian. No. There were a lot of lot of uh, prominent Republican Bushites that were the the never Trump the never yeah, Trumper absolutely. movement is unfortunately still alive. Professor, um, you've outlined for us the the depth and the breadth of the corruption, the conspiracy that really was a an attempt a a, a repeated attempt at a silent coup against a candidate and then a president of the United States as an American. As an observer, as a commentator on all that is happening and has happened, what will it take for our nation on this day of celebration? What will it take in the short term for our country to regain its position and for the American people to trust the institutions that have incredible power over them in the intelligence community and law enforcement? What is the bare minimum, Professor Hansen? I think three things. First, all of the documents, the relevant documents, the millions of pages have to be released without redaction. Very few redactions are justified by national security. A few are, but not as many as we're seeing. We have to have the, the, the corpus of literature out there. And then second, we've got to get away from this idea of a special counsel. Patrick Fitzgerald abused the privileges, just like Robert Mueller. We have to have confidence in the Department of Justice. I, I c- couldn't concur more. The, the whole special yeah. counsel is a dangerous weapon, whoever the president it is. is. It's right out of Les Miserables and Inspectorate And so what we need is Barr to go systematically in a transparent fashion and say, take, for example, James Comey. Did he lie under oath when on our 250 occasions he said, I don't know, I can't remember when directly asked? Was it a felony or not a felony to release probably classified memos of presidential conversation? Did he mislead the president when he said you're not under investigation? Did he mislead a FISA court by knowingly withholding information that the documentation he was using to get a court order of surveillance? was paid for by Hillary Clinton. And, those are, and if they're true, then we have to have an open discussion and indictment. And all of these people need to be held accountable. I could go on and on, but we don't have enough time. But <laughs> this applies to Comey, Brennan. But, but do people have to go to jail, Professor Hansen? Well, they have to follow the law, Sebastian. So if what James Comey did or what James Clapper did, if they are felons, felonious behavior and they're convicted yeah i mean we've already we've already gone there where there were no consequences the reason that we're here is because john brennan to take one example lied on two occasions under oath to the u.s senate once about uh, surveilling computers of staffers and once about collateral damage and brennan admitted that he'd lied to a congressional investigation and said hearing and said i gave the least on two and nothing happened Yes. And that gave them a sense of emboldenedness that they were exempt. And I could go the same thing with Susan Rice when she's uh, she's unmasked uh, people. It's, it's illegal to unmask, not unmask per se, but to unmask and leak those names to the press. And we know that happened. We don't know why Samantha Power was requesting hundreds of uh, request to unmask people as, as a UN ambassador who isn't technically part of the intelligence community. That's the remarkable thing. No. In, in, no. The last, in the last 30 seconds we have in this segment, do you have confidence, Professor Davis Hansen, that this attorney general will try and see justice done? I do that he, that he will, but I'm not sure that 
even his integrity and skills and jurisprudence can overcome a very biased uh, federal court system and a deep state bureaucratic apparatus within the Department of Justice. So he's going to deal with not problems not just with his own people, but the court system itself, who feel that social justice is a higher calling than the actual letter of the law. So I'm not I'm not confident all the time that any of these people will, will end up with the if convicted and if found guilty they'll be they'll face the consequences that you or I would had we been right. in a similar situation. Whether Lady Justice does still wear a blindfold, we are talking to the author for the case for Trump. Follow him on Twitter, Victor Davis Hansen at V. D. Hansen, I, I tend to agree with General Mike Flynn, who I served with in the transition team and in the White House, that on November the 8th, 2016, we saw a peaceful political revolution in the United States. Um, <laughs> Donald Trump would not have been possible, in my opinion, were it not for the abject failure, the moral and technical bankruptcy of the quote-unquote elite on both left and right. Uh, in Wilkesbury, Pennsylvania, he gave a rally speech not too long ago where he said, basically, the left, is, the, the, the elite is dead, and he pointed at the audience and said, you are the super elite. Uh, Professor Davis Hansen, is the quote-unquote elite dead in America? Well, maybe the elite, I mean, there's always going to be an elite in every society, but maybe the elite that we've come to view it in the post-war order that is, the Ivy League degree elite, the corporate elite, the globalist elite, I think they've lost a lot of prestige. And on the major issues of our time, they've been on the wrong side. So what we, the mess that we see at the border, they were either uh, on the left hoping for demographics from illegal immigration that would enhance their power on the right, cheap labor. And they misread the American people and they were discredited. When you look at China, you're seeing now is the elite in the corporate world and on the so-called humanitarian left scrambling without evoking the word Trump to kind of emulate this tough approach to Trump. But where did it come from? I mean, toward China, it's only possible because Trump sort of threw a hammer in the glass and now they're all suspicious of China. And the same thing with Iran on the Iran deal, same thing with moving the embassy to Jerusalem. So Trump disrupted a lot of assumed uh, status quo pretension, and people were bewildered because their orthodoxy said, you can't do that, and if you do it, chaos will ensue, and not only did chaos not ensue, but foreign policy and economic successes did, and now they're trying to either piggyback on it or deprecate Trump's contribution, but whatever they're doing, the message is that they could not do that or they would not do that, and people are starting to grasp that. Does that mean, Professor, that is the change so tectonic in 2016 that the, the stranglehold of the, the Brookings Institution, um, know-it-alls, the op-ed writers has been broken for good? Or will we snap back after a second term of Donald Trump in the White House to business as usual? How... how large is the impact historically of the 2016 election, in your opinion? I think it's pretty large because it's been, there's force multipliers like the internet and blogging and Twitter that allow messaging to go out regardless of the imprimatur from the elite. It doesn't matter anymore. You can see in the Democratic Party, 
you've got a 77-year-old socialist, you've got a 29-year-old basically know-nothing, and uh, all of the other candidates worry the Democratic establishment. The whole thing is in flux. On the Republican side, uh, I don't think if Mitt Romney or Jeb Bush weighs in or George Will or Bill Crystal, <laughs> these were the voices of sober and judicious Republican establishment or the Koch brothers. I don't think anybody in Michigan or Pennsylvania or the Central Valley of California listens anymore. And they've, they've just been tuned out because it was sort of like, you know, they cried wolf one too many times. Trump is a monster. Trump can't be nominated. Trump can't be elected. Trump can't succeed. And after a while, people think, you know, just go away. And I think that's the, the attitude they have toward a lot of those people. Well, the, I, think, I think the influence... I think it, go ahead. I, I'm just thinking maybe we can have a, mer- a more meritocratic league where, where, where one went to school or what the letters are behind one's name don't matter as much as the track record of the actual performance. And that would be, that would be welcome. There's I, always going to be a league. I just, I just hope it's not this aristocratic East Coast, West Coast uh, traditional corporate media university elite. Well, I think it's clear that the he's broken that the never Trumpers they are in, increasingly relevant. However, in in the last uh, two minutes we have left in this segment, it seems as if there has been no change in in the left. If you look at the language of just recent days and weeks, where they talk of con- concentration camps in America, ICE needing to be disbanded, the uh, president's uh, re-election campaign launch being analogous to a Nazi Nuremberg rally. Uh, does that mean, Professor Hansen, that things will get worse on the left before they get better? Yeah, because, I mean, when we say elite, there's different types of roles that an elite play. In the case of the Democratic Party, because they were interested in political power, a Dianne Feinstein or a Joe Biden or Chuck Schumer tried to mask, mask or camouflage the insidious progressivism that was growing in their party. And now that elite is discredited. We don't, you and I are talking about AOC or Representative Omar or Elizabeth Warren or Kamala Harris or Bernie Sanders. We're not talking about Schumer or John Kerry or all these supposed senior statesmen of the Democratic Party. They're completely irrelevant now. And there's been a Jacobin revolution in the, on the left where we've got street fighters and brawlers and baristas. We've got everybody in there, a mob. And in one way, I like to see it because I'm not a fan of, of the progressive movement. But on the other hand, you can see what what happens when when their gatekeepers are overrun by the mob and the mob is in the street. And that's what's happened to the Democratic Party. Uh, I'd like to ask a question about our republic in a historic context. Given the grim, grim things we already know about how power was abused relentlessly and repeatedly during the Obama administration for political purposes, especially to spy on candidate Trump and then President Trump, knowing all that, as an American, do you feel optimistic about our future as a republic, or do you think that we are Rome on the edge of our internal demise? Well, you know, Rome took 400 years <laughs> yes. splendid, splendid decline. So I'm worried about 45 million people, the largest number of immigrants. Not that I, I like immigration, but we're not assimilating in a marrying 
and integrating them. And then we're substituting the rule of law toward, with ideas of social justice, that if your motives are, are declared to be noble, then anything is, is possible and indeed mandatory. That said, I think that when Americans are given the information, the choice, they're not going to vote for reparations or infanticide or the New Green Deal or a wealth tax or to abolish the Electoral College or student debt or ICE or to give free college. I, I don't think they're ready for that yet, and I, I think there's going to be a, a pushback. But at these critical points in American history, whether it was you know, instituting a draft on the eve of Pearl Harbor or what, it's never been a, a sure thing. And, uh, you know, had a, the Confederate Army was all the way on its way to southern Ohio until it went to Shiloh on the first day it almost won. So we've come very close in our history uh, with catastrophe. We've flirted with it. And we're flirting with it now, but I just have to hope that the innate good sense and, and common sense of the American public will prevail. Well, if there is one thing this nation has demonstrated since 1776, it is a remarkable resiliency. Thank you so much, Professor Victor Davis Hansen. He is the Senior Fellow for Classics and Military History at the Hoover Institution. He is the author of the new bestseller, with good reason, The Case for Trump. Follow him on Twitter, VD Hansen, H-A-N-S-O-N. Hey, thanks for listening to the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt. Our podcast is sponsored by Alliance Defending Freedom. ADF provides help at no cost to those whose liberty is being violated, but they can't do it without your help. Call 800-691-8969. That's 800-691-8969. Or visit townhallreview.com. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.